Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If this is your first time tuning in, we welcome you. You can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. Never miss another episode. Go to Apple Podcasts, find us, review and rate. Right? Subscribe, review, and rate. Uh, and we're also wherever else you might be where you get your podcast. So we're on uh, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Google Play. Name one, name another. You'll find us. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right, we are joined on the line by Melissa Levinson. Uh, she is uh, currently a master's student in Arab Studies at Georgetown University, uh, formerly a political science research assistant at New York, New York University in Abu Dhabi, and the author of a piece that appeared in the Huffington Post uh, back in August uh, titled American Kids are learning Islamophobia from their textbooks. Welcome to Radio Islam, Melissa. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. So this is a really interesting uh, topic, uh, particularly because for the past past few days, we've been talking about narrative. Uh, and this uh-huh. this really fits well uh, in that discussion. It, it adds a, a different layer to the idea of narrative. And we think about textbooks. Um, what more... What more powerful uh, platform is there for for creating narrative? I mean, that's basically what it is. So let me first start out by asking what led you to uh, what led you to this realization that American kids are learning Islamophobia uh, through their textbooks? Sure. So I spent the last four years studying in Abu Dhabi, and I really felt like I was watching what was happening in the U.S., um, especially looking at like the presidency of Trump and the rise of Islamophobia. And I felt like I was really disconnected from what was going on back home. Um, and so at my university, we were required to complete a senior thesis. And so I started to think about ways that I could use my Middle Eastern Studies major and couple it with my interest in looking back at the U.S. and trying to understand what's going on in relation to Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. Um, to try to figure out some of the root causes, in my mind, uh, of what we're seeing today and, and the prejudice and Islamophobia that's so prevalent. Um, and so I started reading a lot about the roots of Islamophobia and the role of the media. And I think the media is an incredibly important tool for shaping people's perceptions about Arabs and Muslims. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading these sources, it just felt like something was missing. It, if anyone's interested in the media, um, I really recommend reading Real Bad Arabs by Jack Shaheen. Yes. Um, great book that talks about um, how Hollywood has vilified Arabs and Muslims. But to me, there was something more. And I started thinking about, well, what are the other sources that Americans are using to learn about Arabs and Muslims? And the one that stood out so obviously to me was education. And I think... There's a big lack of understanding of how we are teaching about Arab Muslims in 
in secondary school, um, even middle school and elementary school as well. And so I decided that I was going to look at textbooks and analyze the representations of Arabs and Muslims in textbooks to try to understand if these were contributing to the rise of Islamophobia, and if so, how. Um, so that's kind of how uh, I led to this project, and then um, I completed my senior thesis, and then decided that I wanted to uh, publish some of that work to try to get um, wider understanding about the process. I do think it's really important, like you said, to talk about narrative and understanding how we are learning the things we do about others. Mm. So how does Texas find itself uh, at the, the center of this textbook issue? Sorry, did you say Texas? Yeah, yeah. How do yeah? How does Texas find its way uh, at the center of this issue? Sure. So it's a great question, and it's also a very hard question to understand. And so I think in order to understand how Texas plays a role, we have to step back and understand a little bit about the textbook industry first. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, textbooks are part of a for-profit industry. Textbook publishers, their goal is to make money, right. um, and the way that the textbook publication and adoption process in the U.S. works is that there are 19 states that are called textbook adoption states. And this means that the State Board of Education or Department of Education has a selection committee that meets and reviews and approves and chooses which textbooks the state will buy, and then schools can choose from that list of textbooks. So it's important to know that of the 19 states that are textbook adoption states, 18 are in the South or the West and are Republican stronghold states. Mm. What this means is that the textbook publishers are vying to get their textbooks approved on these lists of approved textbooks in the textbook adoption states, which are the Southern Republican states. Now, why is Texas so important? It's honestly by sheer number. Texas, Florida, and California make up over a third of all high school students in the U.S. And so Texas, or sorry, Texas textbook publishers understand that if you get approved on the Texas market, you have automatically sold an incredible number of books. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that special interest groups also understand this. And the Texas Board of Education, without getting too far into it, is a political entity. And although they are tasked with simply deciding if te- textbooks are um, considered accurate and factually correct, mm-hmm. they're actually reviewing these textbooks for ideo- uh, ideological uh, agreement. So a lot of the uh, individuals on the Texas State Board of Education are grounded in the Christian right. Um, and that's why, in, from what I found in my research, um, this, there's a strong Christian right initiative to portray the Middle East and Muslims in a certain light um, that aligns with their narrative about who is American, what is American, um, and their ideas about where America fits in in the world as a democratic power. So there's kind of a de facto, um, by, by 
saying the Christian right, uh, it's kind of a de facto anti-Muslim or anti-Islam sentiment that's that's embedded in that? You know, I don't know if I'm ready to go on the record <laughs> and say that <laughs> the Christian right is anti-Muslim. I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a man on the expert review, review panel for the Texas um, History and Social Studies Standards. His name is David Barton. Go look him up. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. He has a organization called Wall Builders. And Wall Builders, their stated mission is to stress the Christian and godly foundation of our country. And they have an article on their website that explains that Islamic terrorism in the U.S. is 200 years old and basically writes an entire article about how Muslims and terrorism are intertwined and have been in the U.S. since its foundation. And... Mm. This man is one of, I want to say, five or seven people on this expert review panel. And he's very explicitly adamant about his views about Arabs, Muslims, and Christians. And so while I wouldn't say that everyone who believes in conservative or Christian right values is anti-Muslim, Mm-hmm. There are individuals who do espouse those beliefs and who do have a lot of authority in Texas and elsewhere in the textbook industry. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, all right. I, I, I'll look him up. Um, that's really interesting. I, I wish I had the stats available to me right now uh, just for the purposes of uh, contrast. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to look him up because if he's talking about 200 years of terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, that would be really interesting. Interesting to see how that contrasts to American-born terrorism uh, or mass oh, shootings, yeah. or you know uh, that. Yeah, that'd be an interesting, uh, interesting contrast. Uh, <laughs> well, also w- one thing that I did find when I was um, reviewing all these textbooks is that the way that they or the way that they frame the sentences when talking about. Um, internal terrorism or mm. white shoot or mass shootings committed by white males yeah. is completely different than the way that they describe it when it's committed by Arabs and Muslims. And um, just an example of that is when they talk about um, Columbine or the Oklahoma City, um, they use the passive voice and say it was bombed. People were shot. And it takes away the almost the blame and it takes away the um, participatory action of the person who is involved in the shooting and and when you talk about Arabs and Muslims in these textbooks it is the complete opposite and it says these 19 hijackers were the ones who bombed it this man committed this crime this Muslim committed this crime and so it's a completely different language that they're using um, and it gets hidden because you have to really be looking for it to, to notice these subtle differences. But they are there and they creep into how people understand um, agency and who's responsible for actions. Mm, mm. So um, so but the, the fact that this is a for-profit business and Texas being the biggest, uh, the biggest market uh, and 
looking to be appealing to the ideology uh, and, and sentiment that's already present there. These books are written, textbooks are written that portray Muslims and Islam in a uh, in, in a derogatory manner, basically. Precisely. Okay. So, so what I what I found was that there's rise and fall narrative um, mm-hmm. that portrays Arabs and Muslims until the um, medieval times, so the golden age, as the flourishing civilization who contributed to Western science, who helped translate books, who were instrumental in astronomy and mathematics. And then you get to the Ottoman period, and it's just a complete decline. And we see images of terrorism, oppression of women, um, dictatorships and authoritarianism. And so the narrative becomes one of this civilization was flourishing and successful and rivaled European powers to a bygone static oppressive region and religion um, that is very much opposed or um, opposed to American values and way of life. Right, right. Hence the argument that Islam is antithetical to democracy, uh, to modernity, um, you know, and so on. Exactly. So, um, so since, you know, we kind of introduced the, the conversation around narrative uh, and in a country where Muslims are what I think one percent of the population, mm-hmm. um, which means that, you know, may have you may have areas where there's are larger percentages. But overall, you know, just a really a minute, um, a minute, you know, portion of the overall population. So that means that most folks who are learning about Muslims probably don't know a Muslim uh, themselves personally. So, mm-hmm. so when it comes to this idea of narrative, what's the impact on Muslim and non-Muslim children uh, as they read these books? I think that's a great question. Um, I personally grew up in Maine, which is mm-hmm. the whitest state in the country. Um, I did not know a Muslim until I was almost graduating from high school. Mm. And I think that when you do not have personal experiences to supplement what you're learning in school, what you're learning in school and, of course, what you're learning from your parents in the media become the only sources of knowledge about Muslims. Mm. And the, the problem with textbooks is that they come with this clout and the, of authority um, that presents facts as completely factual, um, unbiased, and objective. And that's not true. That's what we see with um, the way that these special interest groups are able to push their ideology. And so if you don't know an Arab or a Muslim and you're able to step back and question what you're learning in school, I think obviously um, you're going to absorb these, um, these sentiments that are put forth in the textbook. Um, for Muslim youth, I think it's even more detrimental. I'm speaking as a non-Muslim, so I, I don't want to go too far, but I think any time that you are hearing everywhere you go these messages about your faith, about your ethnicity, um, in school, in the media, from your peers, you can't get away from it. And as much as you are taught 
by your parents or by your local mosque to love yourself and love your faith, I think it can be absolutely detrimental to someone's identity to hear these things repeated over and over again. Um, we have to remember that even though there might be 1% of the population, there are growing number of Muslim children in our schools. Right. And they're the ones being taught these representations about themselves as well. And they may absorb them and they might have to question what they're being taught at home. Um, and I think it might, I don't know if I want to use the word identity crisis, but it definitely creates uh, issues with trying to understand where you are in the world, in the U.S., um, and how other people understand you as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to go back a moment to the uh, the fact that uh, with these adoption states um, mm-hmm. and Texas, uh, its board, it being, uh, th- you know, these are either elected, <clears throat> excuse me, elected uh, positions or appointed positions, I would imagine. Uh, and I, w- I want to get your thoughts on the danger of politicizing Education, even though uh, there's a, a, a wonderful saying I recall uh, reading, I think it was uh, Paulo uh, Freire, who says uh, education is a political act. Um, mm. But in, in these terms, when you're talking about a pluralistic uh, society, uh, re- regardless if you have 1% or 2% or, or 30%, you know, the, the percentages don't matter. The fact is that we have a diversity. And when that diversity is not presented and uh in in a way that gives each part each part of that um each part value um then you know there is there there's a lot of danger in that so so as i say that talk about the um could you tell me so obviously there there is a danger in politicizing education but what is the what in your mind do you have any any remedies um for that that's a great question as well, um, and also something that I've thought a lot about. And um, I've taken a couple of classes on peace building, and one recurring theme is that education is a tool for combating prejudice. Mm. But we have to understand that education, especially state-sponsored education, um, is also there to put forth the state's dominant narrative and to teach children what the dominant powers in the society want children to learn. It doesn't help that the textbook industry is very porous to external forces, such as special interest groups on the Christian right, but also on on more progressive left side as well. Mm-hmm. But it is so susceptible to, as you said, the politicization of what our students are learning. Um, that being said, I do see a glimmer of hope in that because I always say very bleakly that the Christian right is winning right now, in mm-hmm. my mind. Yeah. It is winning in putting forth these narratives about Arabs and Muslims. But there's also space for more progressive, multicultural perspectives to come through. And I see that in the democratic process of these textbook adoption um, So in each of these textbook adoption states, there is usually a public hearing where people can go forth, read the textbooks, and present their concerns, what they liked, what they didn't like about the book. And 
have a conversation with not only the people on the selection committee, but also the publishers themselves. Um, groups all the time will review textbooks and write to the publishers. Unfortunately, um, the Christian right is more organized right now, um, ha is, has more funding for these activities. Um, but I do see a space where we can combat what the Christian right is doing by doing it better, hmm. by showing up to these hearings, by reading our children's textbooks, by, if you have the time and the resources, reviewing textbooks for an organization and presenting those findings and your concerns to either, I mean, if you don't live in one of the 19 adoption states, even to your school board, um, to your local superintendent um, administration. And so although the, the democratic process has, I guess, been used in my mind for the wrong reasons and to push the, these intolerant narratives, it can also be used if we mobilize and we organize um, to put forth more accurate, more tolerant, and more multicultural narratives. Yeah, so so yeah, just the one parent who happens to see the textbook that their their child, their fourth grader brought home, uh, and they get upset about it, uh, whether you know they're Muslim or not, and they go in and complain, it doesn't have the same weight that uh, an organizational response would have. Exactly. Uh, well, and also mentioning that, to to your knowledge, is are ha have there been any notable? Um, uh, comments that have been made and any pushback that's been made by uh, whether whether it's a, a mosque or uh, a, an organization uh, in particular that has kind of taken on this this uh, representation. Um, so I've actually done a little bit of work with CARE in D.C., so the Council on American Islamic Relations. Yes. Um, okay. And they've done wonderful work mm -hmm. working with um, education. I'm not sure about textbooks specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I also am working in the Education Outreach Coordination Office at Georgetown Center on Contemporary Arab Studies, and they're doing wonderful work. work I'm actually working with um, reviewing textbooks and seeing where they align or don't align with the Virginia State Standards for Social Studies. So there are organizations undertaking this um, these efforts. The problem is it's largely volunteer work, and so finding professors and finding people who are qualified to contest the information that's put forth in textbooks is difficult to come by. Um, that's why I think we need more graduate students, undergraduate students, even parents who feel like they're knowledgeable in these, in these fields. Muslims, speak mm -hmm. for yourselves and speak for your understanding of your faith to come forth and work within these organizations and these already established um, structures to be able to put forth this change. Mm, absolutely. And, and I would say that within, uh, within the work that's already going on, uh, that there, if there is, well, maybe there is, but you know, I don't know. Uh, but it's needed, uh, to have, uh, an umbrella, you know, um, uh, you know, the textbook review, you know, national textbook mm. review where folks from whatever organization kind of plug into um, 
you know, to, to work from wherever they are. And, I, and basically, yeah, that's, that's what you said. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, I absolutely think that is really important. Last question I want to ask. I want to go back to uh, the fact that, you know, once again, to narrative, uh, we take textbooks often, you know, as children, we don't, you know, we don't look at these things with, uh, with any type of really real critical uh, analysis. Uh, we, you know, uh-huh. we read, we memorize and, and, and we regurgitate. Um, so those people that are writing these books, they are able to do so without um, basically because they, they have professional standing. Uh, is, is that is that the case? They, they, they're they're accomplished academics. And and since they wrote it, it's basically just taken as, as, as true. Oh, I have so much to say about this. Go, go right ahead. So, uh, <laughs> for my for my research, I actually conducted interviews with some of the what I call pseudo authors of these textbooks. Mm. What I found was that the authors or the people who are listed as the authors on these textbooks actually write very little, if any, of the textbook content itself. They're more there to compile the information that the publishers are getting from freelance writers. Now, these writers could be academics. They could be people from think tanks. It's not really clear who Mm. is actually writing this information. Um, I also spoke to these authors who said they haven't seen the textbook. They haven't even looked at it since the 1980s. And their name is still what? on it as the authors in a 2018 copyright edition. Wow. And so the problem is, like you said, if we're looking at these textbooks as factual sources, first of all, none of this, these textbooks are citing their sources. We don't even know who's writing these textbooks and mm. the information in them. And so if you don't even know of the political process that's going into informing these textbooks, how are you supposed to know to challenge these narratives? Um, I was always taught in in university that high school constructs so that university can deconstruct. So we teach students facts and we teach them the basis for them to go to college and question those facts. I have a big problem with that because one, Many people don't go on to college. Right. But two, how does it make sense to teach people something if you have the intention of unteaching it? Um, <laughs> and, and there's so many studies that show that what you learn when you are young gets ingrained in your head. And yeah. the biases yeah. that you acquire before the age of even nine become solidified over the years. So I do think it's important to understand that... These textbooks are not written in a vacuum. They are written by real people with real interests. And we don't even know who they are most of the time. I spent an hour and a half on the phone with one publisher, and they could not give me who wrote the textbook because there was not even a public or an author listed on the textbook itself. Wow. They're making millions of dollars off of this textbook, and they can't even tell me whether or not they know. I, I don't know if it was just a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't tell me. Um, and I think it's really important to understand your students are observing this and your children are observing this information as objective truth. Let, let me ask this, Melissa. Let, let me ask this. Um, so the fact that in this, in this realm here, 
uh, which goes against, um, you know, I, I think I think in terms of academic writing, peer reviewed journals, um, you know, you, you don't everything has to have a name to it. And you mentioned, you know, they're not citing where they got information from. So exactly. there's th- there is a problem with transparency and ownership. Right. You're not own. Mm-hmm. Nobody's owning the word. And, uh, you know, and, and thus the idea of transparency. We don't know who's writing what. What are the steps? Because obviously this is something that needs to be on the uh, that needs to be brought to the, the, the public consciousness uh, and particularly those communities. Uh, Muslim. I mean, we're talking about the Muslim community, but this same the same process can be used for other minority um, uh, populations as well. So what what's the response to this? What's the what mechanism needs to be put in place or um, and I know this is kind of off the cuff, but uh, where where would where would people where would we start uh, to address that issue right there? Well, like you said, I'm an academic as well, and I am so adamant on citing sources. Even just put a footnote, put a number, and put it in the back of the book, mm-hmm. so that if students want to know, if teachers want to know where this information is coming from, they can track it down. Um, another layer of this whole process that I didn't get to in my in my research is the role of teachers themselves, who are mediating and interpreting this information and teaching it to students. So even the teachers don't know where this information is coming from. It's hard for them to interpret and and relay it to their students as well. Um, so one sources need to be cited absolutely. Um, Two, like you said, um, I, I really think that this needs to be a more transparent process. I understand that these are for-profit companies. They want to protect their their rights to this academic property and intellectual property. But I spoke with or I reached out to many people who are currently working at um, these publishing companies, and they all said, we signed a non-disclosure agreement, and we cannot tell you what we're doing. Wow. And I understand, uh, in a market economy, I understand why people are doing that, and I understand why companies are making their employees sign these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But if it's being presented as objective facts and being presented to students as the absolute truth, we need to know the background of the people who are writing this information. And we need to know where they're getting the most information from as well. Mm. Well, there's obviously uh, a lot of work to be done. Uh, and we don't, I like to say, we don't have these conversations just for the purpose of informing, but it's also to um, to get people motivated. Uh, because this is something that, whether you're Muslim or not, um, we should want to make sure that the narratives, what we're, the stories that we're telling about us, uh, to us, uh, that they're stories that make us stronger. Um, so this is a it's really important, uh, really important work that you've done uh, and that you continue to do. So it has been really great talking to you. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Now, did you uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're on social media or anything like that, if you're writing anything else that you uh, that you want to share that folks can follow you anywhere. Um, do you have anything like that? No, I really don't. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I went. I, I spent a semester in Palestine, and I 
learned from going through Israeli security to be careful what I put online. And so I am a little incognito when it comes to social media. Enough um, said. I encourage people to go, <laughs> to go check out the Huffington Post article. I really look forward to putting more out in the future um, and making my work accessible. Um, okay, well, we'll keep an eye out for you there then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. All right. Thank you so much. All right, we'll take a short break and we will return in a minute. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. <laughs> 